Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us wisdom tonight as we look at this book of wisdom that has, uh, in fact, many things about it that would appear unhappy and things that uh, would appear troubling in the world, and indeed they are. And yet, through it all, there is this silver lining of hope. Because hope does not end ever with you. You are, as we just sang, forever faithful to us. So God, I pray right now, speak through your imperfect servants' feeble lips to edify those you have brought here. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So uh, to begin this week's message, I want, uh, I want you to pause for just a moment. I mean, just, just a moment. Maybe if it's helpful for you to concentrate, to close your eyes. And to ask yourself the question, what is driving you? What are you driven by? I'm not asking you to think about what you tell people you're driven by. I'm asking you to ask yourself, really, I want you to be brutally honest, what really motivates me? Since I'm asking you to be so real and honest about what's driving you, I'll be real and honest with you about what's driving me. The truth is, and I would imagine it's the same for you, I'm a mixed bag of motivations and drivers. On the one hand, I planted this church a year and a half ago as the pastor because I really, in my heart of hearts, want nothing more than to see more and more New Yorkers become Christians that are fascinated and enamored with Jesus Christ and his gospel and the good news that he brings. On the other hand, if I'm honest, I also planted this church because part of me wanted to be seen as an amazing preacher and pastor. I, I wrote my book on the parables that I hope you all got when you came in here this evening. Yes, because I'm hoping that this book goes out to the masses. I mean, when I think about the fact that somebody could be reading this good news about Jesus Christ anywhere in the world... I mean, years even from now, that gets me so excited. I feel so great about that, that people will have access to these parables of Jesus that have been so amazingly used by God throughout history. And yet, I like having my name on a book. It feels good. And I could keep going. But the fact is, in just about every area of my life, I see mixed motivations for everything I do. Whether it be why I want to be a good husband to my wife Missy, or why I want to be a good father, why I want to be good at anything, why I get up in the morning. I'd love to tell you that all my motives are pure, but they're not. There's always, there's always a mixed bag. So what should drive us? That's really what the author of Ecclesiastes, who we're calling the preacher in our series, observes 
in our short passage, just five verses tonight. And I think he lists uh, some possible answers that he sees are driving people around him and probably to some extent driving him too as he lives his life. And, and the first thing, the first characteristic he notices that drives a lot of people is envy. Envy. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's like the preacher said, not a whole lot's changed, nothing new's under the sun. And even if not all toil is done out of envy, if you think about it, an awful lot in our world is. And isn't it a good thing? I mean, this is the question I want us to wrestle through, isn't it? I mean, th that sense of competition can really produce some tremendous results, right? I mean, you've, you've got uh, Tesla and Amazon, although I don't know how good Tesla's doing now, but Amazon and various other ventures uh, trying to uh, start sending space, uh, private spacecraft into orbit. And it is the competition between these various groups in Silicon Valley that propel that, that, that ahead and, and, and create progress. It is this sense of maybe even ending for what the other guys got that they don't got, that they want, that propels things forward. And in our own lives, on a much smaller scale, I mean, we've learned to call envy simply keeping up with the Joneses. At least that's what it was called when I was growing up. I don't know what it's called now. So someone that you went to school with gets a job in the field that you really want to go into, and instead of being happy for them, it pushes you forward to try all that much harder because, frankly, you're a little jealous. My neighbor is sending their child to the private school that costs 30000 a year. So I work that much harder to make sure that I can send my child to that school too. You ever had jealousy or envy of someone else spur you on actually to do harder work, more skillful work? If I'm honest, I have. I have. I mean, that certainly has to be a part of uh, the new Los Angeles Laker megastar LeBron James's motivation as a player, right? I mean, in fact, he said as much in, his, in an interview. He said his goal is to be the greatest basketball player of all time who's ever lived. And then he, he, he said this. It means that he's constantly, quote, chasing a ghost from Chicago. Now, you know who that ghost is. If you pay attention to the NBA at all, that's Michael Jordan. And he, he, at the time, said, in his mind, is like, I've got one guy ahead of me, and it's Michael Jordan. And that acknowledged the preacher still ends up saying that, no, envy is not the best motivation for us to work hard because it ends up being vanity and a striving after the win. That's what he says. Why? Because if you're driven by envy, eventually, if you become the very best at whatever you're seeking to do, which, by the way, if LeBron does end up better than Michael Jordan, as he undoubtedly will now, especially since he's a Laker, um, even if you do become the best, it will eventually lead to isolation and despair. And why is that? Because then your life no longer becomes fixated on trying to get to the top. It becomes fixated on trying to maintain the top. 
And if you don't believe me, just watch sometime Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame induction speech. It's not the best thing you'll ever see in your life. It's kind of sad. I can't help but think of a quote from the uh, oil magnet Daniel Mayhew in the movie There Will Be Blood. It's one of my favorite movies. It's not particularly, um, doesn't make you feel real good, but it's a good window into, into this problem of envy. And he is talking about envy and he says, quote, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. My goal is to make so much money that I never have to be around any of them anymore. So no, envy, turns out, is not ultimately a good thing to be driven by. You don't want that to be your ultimate driver. Well then, how about rest? How about rest? I mean, rest as a motivator can be and should be a great thing. I mean, the fact is, in the Christian life, that's exactly what we're called to. We're called to work from a place of rest, to serve others from a place of rest with God and with others. Indeed, I mean, I'm convinced the Bible teaches that it is precisely the times where we don't have to do anything that we are, in fact, the most fruitful. When we don't have to do something and we get to do something is when we actually are the most creative and the most fruitful in our lives. As I mentioned here before, I think Google and Netflix have nailed this in their work environments. They've created a place of rest that actually inspires people to want to work. I'm all about it. For my own life, I can remember before I started seminary, all I wanted to do in my spare time was read theology books and listen to sermons because I wanted to find out about the craft of preaching. I wanted to understand how it was done. I was fascinated by it, interested in it. And then I remember when I first got to seminary and I started actually uh, working in class and I had to read books and I had to listen to sermons. Yeah. I wasn't nearly as interested because it became a have to. So yes, working for rest is essential. But that's not what the preacher is talking about in our text here. What we're talking about here goes beyond rest to sloth or laziness. So the preacher writes in verse 5, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. One of my favorite proverbs states it this way. It's just, it's such a great picture of laziness. The person who's lazy in the Proverbs goes by the name sluggard. And so it says in verse 15, the sluggard, or it says in verse 14 of Proverbs 26, as a door turns on its hinges, I just want you to get this picture. As a door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns in his bed. Second picture, verse 15. This is amazing. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, like to get food. So there's a dish with food in it. It says he buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. So just think about that picture, like the lazy, like just like, oh, oh. Mom, can you come and help me? I'm like, I, just, I don't want to. I'm just tired. That's the laziness we're talking about here. The idea being portrayed by the preacher is that somebody so sits with their hands full that eventually they get so lazy that they don't even want to get up to work at all, so they to get up to, to eat, so they just start, they start eating 
themselves away. So, rest, yes. Laziness, no. The working for the weekend sort of mantra is not a great motivator. I just I don't want, I'm just doing as little as possible to get by men. No, it's not, that's not the way it should be, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes. Well then, what about riches? I mean, can you really deny that the desire to get rich or at least to make more money isn't a huge motivator to accomplish amazing things? I mean, we've all heard the rags-to-riches stories of those who've worked insanely hard in order to escape a life of poverty and have succeeded beyond their wildest expectations. I mean, even if the story isn't dramatic enough to make into a movie, we've heard about the person, and we know people that, that after getting into their career have decided to go back to school to further the education. Why most of the time? Primarily to make more money. Because money can buy at least a feeling of a deeper sense of security and give us lots more creature comforts. And I'm all about them creature comforts. I like them. A little while back, I was talking to my six-year-old Lincoln. I do that sometimes. And he told me that he wants, when he grows up, he's got, he only wants one thing. A Lamborghini. He said, I want a Lamborghini, Dad. I said, wow, that's a pretty expensive car, Link. And no joke, this is what he said to me. He said, yeah, I know, I'll just work all the time and drive around my Lamborghini. It's too bad for my family because I'll never see him. <laughs> six years old. The wisdom coming out of that six-year-old mouth. Because what he's saying is actually the reason why the preacher has a problem with riches being the motivation. He says, and the question that the riches motivation you need to ask behind it is, who is this really for? What is this about? If I get rich, but I don't have anybody to enjoy it with, to pass it on to, to, to live life with, what's the point is his question. One person who has no other, verse 8, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. He never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. I'll never forget one encounter I had down at the Bean on 9th Street and 1st Avenue, just, you know, 11 blocks, street blocks south of here. Uh, I hung out there a lot before we had a church service to try and meet people. And, and I met this older gentleman there and struck up a conversation with him. I told him I was a pastor. And then he, he told me that he no longer worked, but that he had spent his whole life working in, uh, in finance. And came to find out that he wasn't, he didn't just like work in finance. Like this dude ran a corporation. He was a CEO of a major company. And at one time had a massive amount of money. Soon he was uh, pulling out his bag. He was pulling out like magazine clippings and newspaper clippings with him from 25, 30 years ago. Detailing all of his success and wealth. 
And I was impressed. I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, this is something that happens in New York. You meet the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And he could tell I was impressed. And so he said something that surprised me. He says, you know, I, I share this because it's all I got. In truth, I really regret all of it. I said, why, why do you regret all this? He says, well, I mean, I became rich. But as a result of my desire to get rich at any cost, I never married. I never had children. I never spent any time with any of my family. Even when my own mother was dying and he started to get animated and he started to well up in his eyes. He said, even when my own mother was dying, I was just too busy to spend any time with her. And I didn't see her before she died. And now I sit here, yes, as an old man with money and nothing else to show for it. That's what the preacher wants us to understand about making riches the centerpiece of your life. It won't satisfy. Okay, Eric, then what should drive us? That's the question, right? I've just eliminated three areas, and I think the preacher hints at it at verse 6. There he writes, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. The preacher is essentially saying, even if it means living with less, if you have, if you have peace and quiet internally, then you're a thousand times better off than the person who is driven by envy or laziness or riches. So the question then is how do you and I get this sort of peace? Where does it come from? Where does the kind of contented peace that gives us security enough to rejoice at others' successes come from instead of being envious of them? How do we get the kind of contented peace that gives us the ability to keep working when all we want to do is just laze around? How do we get the contented peace that gives us the ability to be satisfied with less? And to get the answers to those questions, I think we have to go back to our epistle reading from earlier in the service that Kat read. There the Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians 4, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's the old Sunday school answer. The answer is always... Jesus. Why is it Jesus? Because through faith in Jesus, we're on the one hand declared to be enough by him, just as we are. I mean, he, he makes us enough. He makes us worthy of salvation. 
And we're promised that he's guiding our every step. Therefore, envy just won't work as a driver when Jesus is ultimately front and center because the gospel that he declares to us says that we have enough in him. Because Jesus is the one who rested perfectly and was never lazy, now we can work not as a have-to, but as a get-to. Really hard for those around us. Oftentimes, I'm accused of downplaying the need to work hard. Not at all. I just don't think you have to work hard for God to be saved. I think Jesus has already taken care of that. But I really want to urge you to work really, really hard for the good of your neighbor. I think that's worth sweating for. I think your neighbor needs you to bleed and work and sacrifice for them. I think that needs to happen all the time. I just don't think you should uh, think that it has anything to do with your salvation because that was already won for you 2,000 years ago on the cross. But yeah, I want you to work hard. Because Jesus is the one who instead of being driven by riches willingly gives up everything to save sinners on his cross. So that the Apostle Paul can declare to the Corinthian church and to us, by his poverty you have become rich because he was willing to lay down everything for you. And now we're freed up to do the same. Because he's been crowned Lord of heaven and earth, he can give you the peace that you require in order to live with a handful of quietness rather than two hands full of toil. And I'll tell you, I've experienced this, I know this. I have never experienced riches. Um, never had that, didn't grow up with that. But I have experienced what it is to have peace, whether... I have much or whether I'm lacking. And I have to say that it is far better to live with a sense that you're walking with God in peace than to struggle and to worry about whether you are enough according to the world or according to how good you do at your work or anything else. So rest well. He'll give you the handful of quietness you need so that you're not filled with a handful of toil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the source of peace, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for giving him to us right now through this word and through the sacrament that we're about to take. Your body and your blood given for us. Why? So that sins can be declared forgiven and our hearts can be filled with peace. Lord, thank you for these that you've brought here tonight. May you bless them and lead them. Amen.